Well, it's great to see all of you here. I want to tell you that the next two weekends are going to be exciting weekends at our church. And uh, then in September, we start a brand new series that I don't want you to miss. It's called Turbulence, Climbing Above Life's Uncertainties. We're going to look at four ways of how to deal with the uncertainty that's going on right now politically and economically and even socially in our culture right now. As families, as individuals, how are you going to survive what's coming up these next several months and not just in our nation, around the world. We're going to be dealing with some real relevant stuff and, uh, that's going on in our culture, but you're going to get some very, very practical ways to deal with it. So don't miss it and invite a friend to be here. Um, have you ever had an experience where you went to your mailbox and you got an envelope, maybe a small envelope or a big envelope, and you saw the postmark or the return address, and it created some suspense in your life? Maybe it was the college that you applied for but wasn't sure you were going to get into, or maybe it was a company you sent your resume to and you're wondering, as, is this going to be a letter of acceptance or rejection? Is this good news or bad news? Or have you ever pulled out an envelope and looked at it and realized that it was from the United States government and in particular from the IRS and it's not your tax refund? And you hold that thing nervously You don't want to open it because you don't know if it's going to tell you that you owe more taxes or if you're going to jail. And so, you know, you kind of hold it rather nervously. What really is inside of that thing? Well, imagine tomorrow morning that you get up and you go to your mailbox and you pull out an envelope, big or small, and the return address on it is God. And God has sent you a letter. Or better yet, somebody is standing right in front of your door, official looking, and they ring the bell, and you open it, and they say your name, and they say, you need to sign for this, it's from God. How many of you would be just a tad bit nervous to get a letter from God besides me, right? Good news or bad news, right? Well, listen, some of you are thinking to yourself, that's silly, God doesn't write letter, you know, letters to people. And the answer to that, or the, my rebuttal to that is, yes, he does, and he did. In fact, we have several letters that he wrote to specific churches, and they're mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles open, you may want to turn to that letter, in particular the one that's found in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Use the Pew Bible if you want, in chapter 3. But Jesus wrote this letter. He wrote it through the hands of the Apostle John, who, like a uh, secretary, took the notes that Jesus gave him. And then it was sent by courier to a group of people like us, a group of believers, community of believers at all levels, living in a place called Laodicea, which can be found in modern-day Turkey. What were these people like? And what was going on in their lives and in their church that would cause Jesus to want to send them a letter? And what is it that could be going on in your life, in my life, the life that we have as a church, a community together, that might cause Jesus to send us a letter or draw our attention to this letter to say, hey, listen up, this was for you as well. I want you to get to know Laodicea because you can only understand the letter if you understand the geography and the culture of that day. And so, uh, I don't know, a little over a year ago, I happened to be there and uh, Josh, our tech director, was with me, and we shot some film there. And so I want to take you there just for a minute. We're going to visit three cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. They were all in what's called the Lycus Valley. So let's go there for a minute.
That's me. So there's Laodicea. You see the other two cities. Right now, we're going to be standing in Laodicea at an empty ancient theater. And uh, looking across the way, you're going to see these white hills. And they're uh, perched on what was called Hierapolis, a very large city. And the white is caused by the thermal water that would run over there, leaving a calcium deposit. And Hierapolis was noted for those thermal baths. People would go there for healing. They would bathe for skin disease and be healed. The next city we're going to go visit is across the way. And the name of that city is called Colossae. And it's not been excavated, but it's beautiful, green, and lush. Very different from Hierapolis, very different from Laodicea. And that's because there was an underground spring that fed that area that was noted for how cold it always was. And it was very refreshing, especially in the very hot summers. Now we're going to leave Colossae and we're going to make our way back to Laodicea to a main street that was just recently excavated and uncovered. Laodicea didn't have a source of water. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But it was very, very wealthy. Uh, Several trade routes converged there, and it was a banking center in its day. Not only that, but it was a fashion center. They were noted for a very shiny black wool that they sold. And then finally, it was noted as a medical center, the Mayo Clinic of its day, especially with diseases for the eyes. They had salves and powders that they would treat those diseases with. So Laodicea was a very real place and inhabited by very real people, and there was a church there. And we don't know a lot about the beginnings of that church. We think it was probably established by a man by the name of Epaphras, who was the disciple of the Apostle Paul during his ministry time in Ephesus. Epaphras was from that second town we looked at, Colossae, and he probably started churches in Hierapolis and one in Laodicea. And Paul never visited there that we know of, but Paul knew about the church of Laodicea. In fact, in uh, Colossians, which is the letter to the city in Colossae, he writes these words. Colossians chapter 4 says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. We just were there. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So here's a, a great church. And I can imagine that Nympha or whoever else was leading it because the second letter that we're looking at came years later. I'm going to imagine that they were a tad bit nervous when they got that letter to the church of Laodicea. And, I, and I'm imagining myself that they're doing a little bit of self-examination. I mean, if you got a letter from God tomorrow, would you first stop and ask yourself what's wrong? How many of you would do that? I would. I'm like, okay, what, what's this all about, you know? Uh, no news is good news. I've got news, all right? And uh, I'm sure they did some soul searching. As far as we know, there was no, like, gross sin going on in that church like there were in some of the others. And as far as we know from the letter, uh, or from everything we've learned, uh, there's no heresy or false teaching taking place. It was a good church with good people and lots of good things that were happening there. So, like, what is the deal? Well, finally, you know, they probably 
maybe rented a space and had a picnic or something. And, and they, they decided to read the letter aloud because that's what they would have done in those days. They didn't have newsletters or the internet. And, and so they, they open it up and they, they, pull out, they pull out the letter to the Laodiceans. And they begin to read. And the opening sounds like this. To the angel, and that could also be translated to the minister, right? And that's what it means. To the minister or leader of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That's quite an opening, isn't it? This isn't some mamby-pamby, sissy little letter. This is coming from God, who is the Amen, that is the, the final say, the faithful and true witness. What he says and promises, he delivers on. The ruler of creation, the sovereign one. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're this little church in Laodicea, and the God of the universe wants to talk to you? Wow. Does he really care that much about his church? Well, look at the next line in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds. Let's just stop there for just a minute. In other words, God was saying to them, I'm the God of the universe, but I know what's going on in Laodicea. I know all about you. I know about your pastor. I know what he's thinking. I know what's going through his head when he's writing his sermons. I know about your leaders. I know why they come to meetings, what the motives are behind what they say and do. I know about your students. I know what they do at school. I know what they do at the youth group. I know what they're thinking about each other. I know the staff. I know what their motives are and why they do what they do and what they say behind each other's backs or or in, you know, the corners, all right? I know the volunteers. I know what they're thinking. I know why you do what you do. I hear every complaint that comes out of your mouth. I know the members who sit in the cheap seats and aren't involved and expect to absorb and receive. I know who gives and I know who takes. I know everything about my church. Nothing is hidden from me. I don't just pay attention to Willow Creek or to Saddleback Church. I know the smallest, the largest, the medium size. I know everything about my church. And when I read that this week and thought about myself and our church, I, part of me wanted to resign. You know what I mean? It's like, God, that's right. We get this mindset sometimes, I think, in our, in our minds that, that, you know, like we're over here and God... You know, we're insignificant. God isn't really paying attention to us. And that's a dangerous mindset to have, isn't it? And God knows my thoughts personally. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows why I do what I do. He knows my hang-ups. He knows my issues. He knows my struggle with, with my pride and all the issues that I deal with just like you deal with. And God knows our elders. And he knows what motivates them and what's going on in their hearts and their minds when they show up to a meeting. And God knows our staff and what they're thinking and why they're thinking it and what their struggles are. And God knows every volunteer here. And God knows you when you give. And God knows when you take. God knows who's serving. God knows who's holding back. I mean, we are all laid bare before God. He knows everything about us as a church. Everything about us. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that intimidating. Am I alone? We can pretend he doesn't, but he does. And he doesn't let it go. I mean, we're all going to answer for it someday. So God knows everything about us. Well, what did he know about the church of Laodicea? What was on his mind? Words of commendation? What does he have to say to them? Let's look. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Well, I'm telling you what, if they're having that at a picnic, that just spoiled dessert for me. How about you? I mean, I imagine that there are some folks who, when they heard that, were just stunned and in denial. I think there are others who knew what Jesus meant and began to weep and repent. And then I think there must have been some stubborn Dutchmen like me, right, who heard those words and got angry and said, how can you say that about us? How can you say that about me? I teach Sunday school. I show up every week. I put my offering in. How can you say that about us? Well, what was, you know, what was Jesus saying about them? What was it about this seemingly good church that bothered him? He gives us some clues. He says, you know what? I wish you guys were hot or cold. Some people say, well, what Jesus meant is, I wish you were spiritually hot or spiritually cold, but you're lukewarm. I don't agree with that. I don't think Jesus could ever wish somebody to be spiritually cold. Go back to the geography of the place, and I think we'll understand. I think what Jesus is saying is, I wish you were hot like the water in Hierapolis that was healing to the people who bathed in it. I wish you guys were a, a healing church to the community around you. Or I wish you were like the, the water and cola, say, nice and cold and refreshing. I wish you were a refreshing drink in my mouth into the mouths of the people who are around you. But you're lukewarm. And they knew what that meant. See, they had to get their water by aqueduct five miles away. And by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, guess what it was? It was lukewarm. You know, there are some things that you can drink that are hot and they taste good. And... and you can drink when they're cold and they taste good. But when somebody hands you something like I have right now that is neither hot nor cold but is <laughs> lukewarm, you're like, Myrtle, give me the communication card. Pastor spit in church. I want to let him know I don't appreciate that. <laughs> Say, Pastor, that... Uh, that was disgusting. I don't let my kids spit. But to watch you spit up there almost made me ill. Good. Because that's the point Jesus is making. You know, when I taste you, when, I, when, I, when I'm with you in your experiences together, worship, whatever it is, I just want to, I just want to expel you. It's so lukewarm. It's so distasteful to me. Well, why? Why? How could people who are followers of Jesus, claim to be followers of Jesus, be distasteful? He gives us another clue. He says, remember at the end of verse 17, he says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, which doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense if you know anything about Laodicea, because the fact is they were wealthy. They were a banking center, remember? The fact is they had plenty of clothes. They're a fashion center. Remember the black wool? And thirdly, they had no, I mean, there, there are people with issues with eyes, but they had the best eye care in the whole world because it was known as a place for the powders and salves that were used for people's eyes. So how can Jesus say to them that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? And so we have to look for another clue, and he gives it to us. He finally says to them in verse 17, it says on the screen, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need 
a thing. Now we're getting to what's going on here in the church in Laodicea. Here was a church where the people were very self-reliant. Where they were very self-sufficient. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say that. Okay? It wasn't like they were totally that way. Look at this balance scale up here. There are a lot of people in life, and they come at life like this. They, they're like, you know, I've got my, I got my money, I got my career, and I got my relationships, and I got my hobbies, and I got all this stuff. But my life doesn't feel very complete. It feels out of balance. I need some God in my life. And so they, they go in pursuit of God. They want to have a relationship with God. They want the scales to be balanced, right? And so then they show up and they say, okay, I want, I want some of God in my life too. I want to be perfectly balanced. I want enough of God to make me feel complete. But I don't want so much of God that I lose control. There was a little... Uh, I don't know if you would call it a poem or a parable that was penned years ago by a man by the name of Wilbur uh, Reese. And some of you may have heard it, but listen to what he says. And it dates itself a little bit, but listen. It says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a person of color or pick beats with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. How much of God do you want this morning? How much of God do I want? Do I want enough of God to know that I am forgiven, but not enough of God for me to forgive the student at school who already, and the years just started, has offended me, hurt my feelings, said something about me, created all kinds of drama that's not true? Do I want, um, do I want enough of God to meet my needs and to take care of my wants, but not enough of God to cause me to sacrifice and suffer for the needs and the wants of other people around me? Do I want enough of God to ensure that I'm going to go to heaven someday, but not enough of God to compel me to care and pray for and reach out to my neighbor, my coworker, my fellow student who may not be going to heaven? How much of God do we collectively want as a church? You ever thought about that? Do we want enough of God just so that we have a great building and good programs that serve our families and our children and our needs? Do we want enough of God to feel safe and secure and content but leave us in control? Or do we want enough of God that would cause us to risk and to step out over the edge and do something far beyond our capacity and trust him to change the world around us? See, I think that was part of the problem of the Church of Laodicea. See, when you become self-sufficient, when you maintain aspects of your life that you want to control, God can't use you because God becomes limited in our life. He only has a chunk of our lives. And evidently, the church of Laodicea lacked passion. They were comfortable. They were good, but they were a comfortable church. They weren't doing anything that really caused them to have to depend on God. There was no exponential vision. There was no uh, uh, willingness to sacrifice for others. They saw the church, the body of Christ. They saw 
each other as existing for one another. How do you see the church this morning? It's a good question to ask. How do I see it? Do you see the church as a place that's, that's here to serve you and your needs and your family's needs? Is that why it exists? Most people years ago in a poll that was given by Christianity Today were asked the question, why, do you see, why does the church exist? And they said it exists to serve me and my family and our needs. You know, the church is also called the body of Christ. And, and, and Jesus left us here to continue to be him in the world. That's why we're called the body of Christ, his spirit working through us. And when I look at Jesus, I ask myself, well, did Jesus exist to please himself? And yet I read words of Jesus that say, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Would most of you agree that Jesus lived for others and not for himself? I think about what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi. He wrote these words to them, powerful words. Listen to them, Philippians chapter 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, in other words, if there's any benefit from being a, a Christian, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. He's talking to the church. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, finish the rest of me, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Listen carefully. The church is not about you and it's not about me. The church of Jesus Christ exists for those who aren't here yet. It's about others. So, well, don't my needs matter? Don't my family's needs matter? Yes, they do, and we want to minister to them and care for them. But listen very carefully. The needs of others come before yours and mine as believers. Hear me again. If you're a believer here today, the needs of others come before yours and mine, their families, before our families. Now, I know it's not going to set well with some, but I think it's very biblical as I understand the gospel, as I understand why we're here. And I think it's one of the reasons why the church in America, if it were to have a letter written to it today, would be the letter to the Laodiceans. Do you know that 80% of churches, according to a 2008 study, are not growing? 80% of churches in America are not growing. The 15% that are, only 1% are growing by reaching people and seeing their lives converted. The rest are swapping sheep. That's pretty sad. Got a problem with America today? Don't blame Obama. Don't blame anybody else. Don't blame Bush. Blame the church. What have we done? We've gotten self-dependent, self-concerned, and, and we just look at the thing existing for us. It's kind of like what you see with big corporate companies. You know, the CEOs start making big salaries and, and whatnot, and they don't care about their employees anymore. They don't care a rip about them. All they care about is retiring with, you know, with, the, with the big money. And then they let the company go. It's all about them. Can you imagine being in a rowboat? Your ship has gone down. You, you managed to grab a rowboat and you've got your family in there. And there are, there, you know, there's plenty of room still left in the rowboat and there are people drowning out there. How many of you would rescue the people who are drowning as many as you could? Absolutely you would. Would you worry about your family? You'd be concerned about them, but they're safe. You'd be reaching out to the people who are still drowning. That's the picture of the church in the world today. 
People drowning all around us. Are we going to reach out and bring them in? Are we going to have the heart and mind of Christ? Laodicea was more like a country club and less like a church. And that's why Jesus says, you're just so distasteful to me. Because you're not me in the world. You're not reflecting me. You call yourself the body of Christ. That's not who I am. In essence, what he was saying to them is, look, I, want you, I don't want you to have a balanced life. I want you to stop trusting everything else, and I want, you, I want you to trust me totally. I want your life to be spiritually unbalanced. I want it to be, I want you totally dependent on me. And he's not being mean. He loves his church, folks. When he speaks to us, it's always out of love. Look what it says in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. How many of you have children? Let me see your hands. How many of you have noticed your children are selfish? Keep your hands up. Where do you think they got it from? And we're always telling our kids what? Think of others what? First. And our kids follow our example, not what we say. Right? How many of you have kids who disobey once in a while? Let me see your hands. How many of you kids have parents who disobey once in a while? Let me see your hands. Yes. Right? Hypocrites. Right? Okay, when you see your children disobeying as a parent, okay, I hope you try to stop them. I hope you try to correct them because you love them. Jesus is doing the same thing with this church. He loves you and me. And he's trying to correct us because he sees where we're headed if we don't turn around. And so he gives us two commands. He says in verse 19, I, I want you to be earnest and repent. Church of Laodicea, church in Naperville, wherever it is, I want you, I want you to repent, be earnest. And the word repent is simple. Repent means if I'm walking in this direction, I turn around and I, and I walk in the direction that God calls me to walk. It means I'm walking this way, I'm self-content, I'm self-sufficient, I'm indifferent to the world around me, the church is all about me, we're a happy, warm club, and God says, I want you to repent of that attitude. I want you to say you're sorry, I want you to ask for forgiveness, and I want you to be all about me and not about you. I want you to live for the world around you that's going to be called the judgment in the very near future and not for yourself. And he says that I want you to be earnest. And that word earnest means in the Greek to pursue with passion. And what he's saying is I want you to stop doing business with the world and I want you to do business with me passionately. I want you to passionately love me and love what I love. I want you to passionately seek me and my agenda. I want you to give your whole self to me. I want you to be passionate about me. And then in fact in the passage if you go Um, up to about verse um, 18. He says, I counsel you, and that means I give you some wisdom. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you cover your shameful nakedness and sad to put on your eyes so you can see. He's saying, stop trusting in the wealth of the world. I want you to trust me. Buy my gold. My gold does not diminish in value. And boy, have we learned a lesson this last year and a half. You know, some of us were trusting our 403s, 402s, 401s, and whatever number you want to assign to them, and they're either gone or they've been greatly reduced. We had our whole retirement plan figured out. We were in control. We had life in balance. We had the best of God and the best of, of Wall Street. It's all been taken from us. It's kind of messed things up for us. And we realize, man, no wonder Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and corrupt 
people on Wall Street and the government will take it away. But lay yourselves up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and, you know, and thieves cannot steal it and destroy it. Makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? Except I wonder how many of us have gotten more spiritual since the, eco- the economy went in the tube, well, went in the toilet. Well, that didn't sound real nice, did it? But it's the truth, okay? How many, you know, how many of us have gotten more spiritual decided to go to church? And then I wondered to myself, for those of us who've gotten more spiritual because what we had is gone, how many of us are praying for God to restore it, and then when he restores it, we're going to cool off spiritually? Do you think God's going to restore it if that's our attitude? Not. It says, depend on me. Church, when I bring you a challenge that you look at and you go, how are we going to do it? Don't forget, I'm rich. And he says, put on these white robes I have for you. Remember, this is a place of fashion. Remember the beautiful black wool? You know what I think Jesus is saying is, you see, when you become self-dependent, when you become self-confident, when you become indifferent to the world around you, when you become moralistic, you become self-righteous. And you begin to evaluate your life and the lives of others based on your own goodness. And Jesus says in his word that our Our own goodness is like what kind of rags? Like filthy, dirty rags. He's saying, put on the white robe of my forgiveness, of my grace, of my love, of my goodness. Dress up in me. Then you'll look good. Then you'll look good. And then he says, get the salve from me. And I think he means the word of God. You know, this, we live in a world that's dark and, and, and the, Satan, you know, is, is the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers with falsehood. And I think the word of truth is what heals our eyes. The word of God gives us a direction to follow. He says, I want you to repent. Stop doing business with the world and do business with me and get passionate about me because I want to use you to change the world. You are the body of Christ. I need you to be me in the world. And then he uses the strangest metaphor, which has been totally misunderstood by so many people. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we always use that as Jesus standing at the heart of, of somebody who doesn't know him. You know, like an unrepentant sinner. And, he's, you know, and we talk about, you've got to open the door and let Jesus in. But look at the letter. He's not writing unrepentant sinners. Who's he writing? His church. He's writing people like you and me. And he's saying to us what? He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, woman, student, boy or girl opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. I want you to let me in the church. I want to be I want to be the reason the church exists. And so he says in Romans or in Revelation 3.20 to the church of Laodicea and to every church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Thank you. Wow. I mean, what did it take? I'm the pastor for crying out loud. And you wouldn't open the door. What if Jesus were standing there? But you get the point, don't you? And sometimes I think Jesus just stands knocking and knocking and knocking at his door. 
waiting for somebody to open it up. We're like, well, come on in. No, you got you to gotta open the door. You got to repent and say, I want you and your way and not me and my way. Is that the kind of, I want, you know, here's the question. Here's the homework assignment. If Jesus were to write a letter to the Evangelical Free Church in Aprilville, which is just a ridiculous long title and address to get on an envelope, <laughs> all right? But if he were to write us, if he were to write us a letter this morning, what would he say? And here's your assignment. Next weekend, I'm going to tell you what I think he would say. And next weekend, I'm going to show you what we are going to do to avoid lukewarmness. You don't want to miss it, folks. You'll be riled up next weekend, so you've got to be here. I want to rile you up, too. But listen carefully. Here's your assignment. I want you to go home, and I want you to imagine. I want you to get a piece of paper, and I want you to write down what you think Jesus would say to our church right now. But, listen carefully. I'm going to take the joy out of it for you right now. Don't go home and think about me or the staff or the programs or the systems because right away you'll start writing down what you don't like and, and imagine it's what Jesus doesn't like. No, I want you to go home and I want you to write down what he would say to you because you are part of the church. And I got to get my own house in order before I can talk about somebody else's house. Amen? That's where I got to start. So based on what you've heard this morning, if Jesus were to write you a letter, would he write you and say to you, man, Dale, why are you so self-sufficient? Why are you trying to lead the church in your own power and your own strength? Repent. Trust me. Trust me. Or he might say, you know, why is it all about, you know, having the church make you feel good about yourself? Why is it about your pride? What is it, you know, what is it about you? Why, do you think that church exists for you? It's about me. Repent. Turn. And what might he say to you? And as, and as you examine yourself, and you go, oh man, God, my motives are not completely right. Then repent and get passionate for Christ. Lord, I just ask that you take this uh, letter that you wrote really to our church as well as any other church. And help us in these next two weekends as we examine it and evaluate and Repent and get passionate. God, help us to experience the change that only you can bring. Because, Lord, our best days are still ahead. The world is still to see a church truly aflame with Christ in its center. We thank you, Lord, that this church has been healing and has been refreshing in its history. But we face, Lord, constant temptation to make it all about us when the truth is it is all about you and your work in our lives.